Well, perhaps you would uh, take your seats. And uh, I'd really uh, recommend that you maybe do have a Bible open in front of you as uh, we try to to tackle uh, 70-odd verses of Scripture in about 25 minutes. Um, Probably take almost as long to read. (laughs) So we, 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 we don't have time to unpick this in massive detail. But there are a number of amazing things that I I trust that that God will just uh, point us to as we look in his word this morning. I just wanted to start, though, by reading some promises of Jesus. Some words from Jesus in... Oh, hello. I did what Steve told us not to do. Some words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. And chapter 28 and John chapter 14. Let me just read these to you. Matthew, uh, John, no, Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20 say this. When they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Going on to verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me, Jesus, before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my father in heaven. Jesus continues. In Matthew 28, last verse of Matthew 28. I'll maybe take the last couple of verses. All authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus said, has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And here's the promise. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jumping into John chapter 14, another promise of Jesus. If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey what I command and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you you forever, the spirit of truth. Jumping to verse 26 of John 14. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. We've read this morning the account of the first person to die for following Jesus, to be martyred because of his love for Jesus. And I just wonder, were those words, words that were resonating through Stephen's head, 
as he faced his accusers, as he faced that baying crowd that dragged him into the courts and accused him of blasphemy, accused him of crimes against the Jewish faith. Did he have those words of Jesus ringing in his ears? I don't know. But what we do know from Scripture is that here, Stephen was a man who was full of God's grace and power. And as we heard last week, God wants to give to each one of his followers grace and wisdom and enabling through his Holy Spirit to be people that point to him. We've seen in the book of Acts so far many accounts of God at work in incredible ways in the early church. And actually it caused real problems. It turned on its head so much of what was kind of the religious normality at the time. There was so much that had emerged from a nation that God had chosen, that he wanted a special relationship with. So many people had become so wrapped up in their tradition and their rules and their regulations that they missed the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. These members of this synagogue as they sought to argue with Stephen. You can almost hear them spitting contempt as they mention the name Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Was a phrase that we heard. We, we probably have our own local prejudices. I've heard various people talk about various places in a sort of a a slightly derogatory way. Can anything good come out of Bridgewater? (laughs) No offence to people in Bridgewater. But but do you know what I mean? People get an impression, don't they, of different places. And actually, the people here looked down on the people of Nazareth and they thought, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, they were so blind that they couldn't see God had set foot on the earth and had come to die for them. It's kind of ironic that, that actually this synagogue of freed men, people who had been freed from slavery, were trying to argue with Stephen and actually were arguing themselves back into their own kind of slavery. But, you know, they first start to argue rationally with him. And then when they realise they're defeated, well, they resort to mudslinging, to rumour spreading, to slander. And here's the frightening thing. 
They probably thought that they were justified in what they were saying with their mouths. They probably thought that what they were saying was perfectly reasonable. They didn't realise that their own tongues were speaking blasphemy. They were speaking slander. They were tearing people down. I wonder how often our tongues, we think, we're speaking things that are fully justified, but actually we're tearing somebody down, ripping them to shreds with what we say and the attitudes we take. That's kind of an aside. But Stephen's response read so beautifully. Thank you, Robin, for doing that. Actually, his response, there is such a likeness to Jesus. There's a closeness to Jesus as he stands firm for Jesus. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. I've given this morning the title, Stand Firm, because that's precisely what Stephen did. He stood firm for Jesus. See, Stephen doesn't set out to be a martyr. He doesn't set out on some kind of holy journey that will earn him favour with God. That's not what martyrdom is about. His priority was to stand in grace for the one who died for him. I just want us to look fairly briefly this morning. Four things in that response that he gives that I just think are are just so helpful in our own kind of understanding of this passage and, and why he kind of goes on and on. It's probably the longest speech in the New Testament. Fifty odd verses giving us a kind of a, an unexpected history lesson. But actually it's great to see that scope of history being set out before us. Four things that I think in Stephen's words that might help us to reflect on why he said what he said. The first thing that he says is that actually what he says identifies time and time again with his accusers. His accusers are trying to vilify him, but he keeps bringing himself alongside them. He doesn't stand aloof from them. He doesn't look down on them. He stands there and he identifies with them. If you look, just a few examples. Verse 2, the way he addresses them, brothers and fathers... It's part of the same family. Then he carries on. Our father, Abraham. Goes on in verse 11. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, could not, before they went to Egypt, could not find food. Verse 19. He dealt treacherously with our people, did Pharaoh. He oppressed our forefathers. So he goes on. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey God. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony, verse 44. Our fathers under Joshua brought it with them, in verse 45. Again and again, throughout his speech, doesn't look down on them, doesn't set himself apart, but he says this is our story. 
I'm a part of this. There's a real humility there in what Stephen says. Because he doesn't look down his nose. He doesn't give the contempt that is given to him. But he seeks to love them. He seeks to engage with them and talk with them. I think that's really important for us to hear. So that's the first thing I just noticed jumps out of, of his address to these people. The second thing, actually humility continues. Because he recognises that actually what was going on in the church at that time was not kind of the first time God had ever showed up. Sometimes we can think that actually what's going on in our little situation is, is the first time it's ever happened, that, that God is, is actually only really interested in our little situation. But he has humility here to say that actually God has been active throughout history. Long before the days in which Stephen was living, God was at work. And he wants to show that and acknowledge that. That what was going on was just the latest instalment of God's salvation history. Speaks of God's faithfulness through Abraham, chapter 7, verse 3. Look at that first little account of Abraham. God said to Abraham, go and Go to a land, I'll show you. Verse 4, God sent Abraham. Verse 5, God promised Abraham that his descendants after him would possess the land. Verse 6, God spoke to Abraham. And so it goes on. God was very much involved in Abraham's life all those years before. God's hand continued on Joseph. God was with Joseph even when he'd been abandoned by his brothers. God's hand was on Moses as we hear recounted the story of Moses. God was at work through the generation after generation after generation that these people that were listening knew full well. But, you know, as he recounts these truths, as he draws them in, as he says to to them, this is our story. This is our God that was at work. He also points out a couple of things that I think were the things that really began to jar and to make the people angry. Because his accusers had got stuck. They'd got stuck in religion. They got stuck in tradition. They got stuck in man-made ways of doing things that actually left less and less and less room for the living God to be at work. We need to be so careful that we don't allow that to happen to us. So the third thing that I notice after just hearing that, that that Stephen included himself in the story and that he showed that God was at work. The third thing is that actually he wanted the people to see that God could never be confined to the temple. 
which is part of their accusation that, that actually he's blaspheming against God and he's, he's speaking against our holy temple and our laws. God cannot be confined. Verse 33. Moses is stood in the middle of Midian. He's not even in Judea. He's in a foreign land. And God is there. God shows up in a burning bush. A bush that's burning so brightly that he's drawn to it. And as he sees it, he realises it's not even being consumed. And he's told, take your sandals off. Because you are standing on holy ground. God was not going to be confined to a building or a box or a people group. God the creator of heaven and earth. And he wanted the people to see that. Even King Solomon, the one who was given the job of building the temple, as he celebrated the building of the temple in 1 Kings chapter chapter 8, Solomon says to God, how can we even build you a place that that's, that's never going to house you. Because you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. How is this place ever going to contain you? So the one who had spent all his resources and resourcefulness recognized that God could not be contained. Verse 48. As Stephen speaks of Amos and Isaiah, he says this, and I think this is almost the key verse in this chapter, verse 48, where Stephen says, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. That's kind of the big accusation that Stephen is making, that you people, you've tried to domesticate God. you tried to make God your own kind of pet personal deity. Instead of acknowledging that we owe him worship and honour, we owe him the lives that he has given us. But the people were trying to confine him and put him into a box. And maybe the fourth thing that really gets their goat is that actually throughout this story, of God's faithfulness that Stephen tells. He keeps highlighting that though God is faithful, the people ain't. The people keep falling over. There's jealousy in in verse 9. That whole kind of debacle with Moses as he kills an Egyptian and then gets accused and all of that kind of stuff. Moses takes his the law into his own hands. He kills somebody. Then he gets found out. Then he wonders why the people don't recognise that actually God wanted to use him. The people, in the meantime, are arrogant and suspicious. There's disobedience and rebellion as the people wait for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai. And ultimately, there is idolatry. As they kind of say, where is this Moses bloke anyway? 
What's he got up to? Why don't we just go back to Egypt where at least we knew what we were into? Or Aaron, perhaps you could just build us a God. Make us something that we can worship. Throughout the history that Stephen recounts, whilst God remains faithful, the people keep on turning their back and turning towards other things. Now maybe not all of his accusers would have got the the kind of nuance of this tale because it was a familiar tale that he was telling. They might even have been sat there thinking, what is he telling us all this for? Why is he telling us this? We know this. But then verse... 51, he kind of goes for the jugular. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen picks up what God had given him to say. Uses the language of the Exodus where time and again... God spoke of the people as being stiff-necked, as being hard-hearted, as being resistant. And he makes it quite clear, Stephen, that in rejecting Jesus, they're in the same boat. They're doing the same thing as their forebears did. They've taken what God has given to enable relationship, the temple and the law, And they made it into something of their own making that's become impenetrable. So much so that they can't even see the living God standing right in front of them and they decide to hang him to a tree and kill him. People's response is pretty shocking, isn't it? Verse 54. When they heard this, They were furious. They gnashed their teeth. I mean, that's that's quite an emotional response if if you're actually kind of spitting like that. They were furious. See, I don't think that there are many things that would get our feelings to run that high in this country. But they were offended. They still felt that there was blasphemy here. But Stephen stands firm. See, his words have substance. They're far from empty words. And he is prepared to die, even to die, for the sake of the one who died for him. He stands on those promises that I read to us at the beginning. He stands firm. So what about us? What about us? Where do we fit into this story? Am I saying, well, actually, people, let's all get prepared to be martyred? I don't think so. I don't think. I don't know. 
But I'm guessing that probably most people, if not all of us here, will not be martyred for our faith. That doesn't appear to be the climate. We never know. But that's not really what I'm thinking. Let's just take a little diversion for a minute. Does anyone watch Strictly Come Dancing? It's kind of big in our house. It's kind of Saturday night de rigueur viewing. Strictly Come Dancing. So there's a new season of Strictly Come Dancing where celebrities learn to dance ballroom dances and Latin dances and do all that kind of stuff. They're taught by professional dancers. And every Saturday night, the pressure is on them to pull out of the bag what they've been shown through the week. They've learnt new things. And they've rehearsed it. They've gone through it. They've stumbled at times. They've got cross at times. They've got frustrated at times. But then, the moment comes, Saturday night, and the pressure is on to perform. For many of them, actually, as you, you, if you watch the programme, there are little video clips of them during the week doing all their training, and they're kind of fitting in. Most of them are kind of celebrities, so they've got other bits of media stuff to do. Maybe they're in a soap, or maybe they're a sports person, or whatever, and they've got other stuff to do. So they're cramming all of this stuff into their week. Their training is a part of their week. Dear Deborah Meaden, our local girl, go Deborah. (laughs) I heard it said... That actually her husband's kicked her out of their room and is in the spare room at the moment because her feet just won't stop moving. Because she's just rehearsing the whole time. She's just doing it. And and she's kind of wriggling even in her sleep. Her life has become consumed by Strictly Come Dancing. Stephen had learned from his master... He had been shown how to live. He had been shown how to put into action the stuff that Jesus had taught by the power of the Holy Spirit working in him through the example and the witness and the sacrifice of Jesus to shape and transform him, to take him from being just a regular guy to being somebody who was able to stand firm when the heat was on. Do you get the kind of Strictly Come Dancing analogy? That actually as Christians, our walk with God, we've got to learn from the Master. We've got to learn from the one who can show us and enable us so that when the pressure is on, we can stand firm when the lights, so to speak, are upon us. Maybe it's just a question from a neighbour, from a work colleague, from somebody in our family. Will we stand firm with grace? Will we not look down our noses and put ourselves at a distance, but actually will we identify with people and yet... Sharing grace and love and conviction. What Jesus has done for us. 
our goal may not be to face martyrdom, but everyone who follows Jesus is required to become more and more Christ-like. Such echoes in Stephen's life of Jesus. Actually really striking that right to the very end, he almost echoed Jesus' words of, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Stephen's last words was, do not hold this sin against them. Forgiveness were his last words. He mirrored Jesus right to the very end. We have a choice. You see, we can be enslaved to sin and our sinful nature. Paul talks a lot about that in Romans. But Christ came to set us free. Will we decide that it's too hard? And like the Israelites say, let's go back to Egypt. It was much easier back there. Or will we stand firm? And will we follow Jesus even when it's difficult? Even when our feet hurt, metaphorically. Even when we've had enough of the training. It's not an easy path to follow. Even if it doesn't end in martyrdom. But actually we were made for Christ-likeness because we're made in God's image. Will you stand firm? Will you train yourself for godliness as Timothy speaks of in his letters? Where would you have been on that day when Stephen was stoned? Would you have had a rock in your hand? Or would you have been stood beside him? Thankfully, God in his mercy receives us back. Time and again, we've learned about Peter recently, how often he goofs, but Peter continually came back to Jesus. It's not an easy path. But actually, that's what we're about as church, as family here. As we study God's word, as we seek to understand and learn and look to God, it's about becoming more like Jesus. Little by little, perhaps. Because I feel I'm a long way off. Don't about you. But are we moving in that direction, little by little, learning more about Jesus, allowing him to transform us and make us in his likeness.